right, cool. Let's pray. Father, Father, we're grateful for you that you are and have been kind to, to us. And even as I think through just some of the hardships that many of us have had throughout the week, um, we're reminded that you are, you are our present help and you are our only help with any real fidelity. I mean, we, we put our hope in things that and it doesn't always work. It seldom works out. We put our hope in a whole lot of things, including ourselves. And at some point in time, we lose strength, we lose endurance, we lose hope, and we fall, and we go into this spiral of depression or sadness. And, but in you, Lord, you, you, you've, you've always shown yourself faithful. You've never failed. You've always completed what you've begun. The good work that you've begun in us, Lord, you've even promised to complete. And I praise you for that, because if it's up to me to complete it, Lord, <laughs> it's over before it starts. But you've decided that you are going to start a good work in me and in, in the people here who love you and believe in you. And I, I pray that they would, through, in the midst of their unbelief, that they would believe that you're going to complete that work in them. That you are bringing them closer to you. And that all the things that they endure and have endured and will endure is for your glory and for their good and for the good of those whom they are going to encounter in days yet to come. Lord, I, I pray that our perspective would be heavily Jesus-focused, that those of us in this room who believe on you would literally lean on you daily, and that our actions wouldn't contradict our lips. As we say and we call ourselves Christians, that means baby Christs in, so much, in, in, in such respects. And, and so oftentimes, we're not looking or acting, even talking to you. And, and, that, and that doesn't jive with the words we say and the things we tell ourselves to believe. For those of us who are in this room and they don't know you or they don't know if they know you, I pray that you would bring them to their wit's end. I know that sounds harsh, Lord, but if you bring them to their wit's end, they'll find that there is no other foundation in which they can build their life on. They'll stop looking to and fro for things to satisfy, and they'll, they'll rest here on your solid foundation. On Christ Jesus, the very cornerstone of that foundation, and they'll stop searching for acceptance and love and forgiveness and, and hope and joy in places that will never really give it to them. People will fail us and let us down. And all the hope we have in our own abilities and strengths, Lord, you can take it away in a, in a minute. But the work that you've already completed, that's, that's for them. If they would but turn and trust in you, it's for them. Acceptance and love and, and joy. Lord, the psalmist says that you are our portion. You are what satisfies the soul. And I want and I beg that this morning, Christians and non-Christians, those who believe and those who don't believe here and under the sound of my voice elsewhere, would come to rest in you. So that those that truth of of Romans eight would be for them, that there is no condemnation for them anymore in Christ Jesus. And that condemnation doesn't come from you anymore. And it, it can't come from people anymore. People can't touch them anymore. Because they're securing you. And as you said to the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you. 
So, Lord, help us to, to believe in the midst of our unbelief and lead us closer to you, Lord Jesus. We invite you up in here in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. My name is uh, Pastor Canaan. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. As always, we have a, a sheet. If you, I hope you've received it. We use a cross-reference sheet every Sunday full of verses that we'll probably reference at some point during the message on Sunday. And so um, if you have it, avail yourself to it. This morning, I want you to fill in my sermon illustration for me. You know how you go to most churches and in the beginning, they got some kind of cool, suave story they want to tell, they kind of hook you into the, into the text. Well, this morning, I don't have a cool, suave story for you. I want you to fill in the blank on the cool, suave story. And I'm going to give you a situation or a scenario to fill it in because we've all endured this. There's something called friction. Friction is, you know, you, you rub something together and eventually it becomes uncomfortable, kind of hot maybe. And, and event, you, want, you want to relieve yourself of friction. And when it comes to our faith, oftentimes friction is the very thing that keeps our mouths closed and causes us to contradict what we say we believe with our lips. You know, one of the instances in which friction does that is in the area of evangelism. That's the most, the most primary way that friction causes us to close our, our mouths. But it's crazy because we call the gospel good news, and the very nature of good news is that it's shared. But if we're not sharing the good news, the question is why? There's several answers as to why. It could be that we ourselves don't truly believe it. But another reason why we may not share the good news is because we're afraid of the friction that may come as a result of sharing the good news. And that's for a lot of us. We, we believe it. We know it's true. But we want to tell somebody about the goodness of Christ. At least tell them about the goodness of Christ in your life, right? You at least want to go there, but you're afraid of the smoke. And so I want you to think back of a time when that happened, when you had that prime opportunity to share that, that good news of Christ with somebody and you pulled back because you were afraid of the smoke. You were afraid of the friction that it may cause. Just remember the scenario in your mind's eye, if you would, for a moment. Where were you? I don't want you to remember it to be ashamed, beloved. I want you to remember it and remember, one, that there's grace for you. But in the midst of grace, I have to give you a truth, a practical something to hold on to. And that practical something is this. If we don't get in the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day, we will forget who God is, who we are, and who we are in him. When we're afraid of friction, it's a reflection of what we believe about who God is. It's when God becomes small and people and their thoughts and their impressions of us become big. Whatever they think, all of a sudden, their opinion grows in our estimation and we hold it higher than who God is, who we are and what he's done for us, which should be the biggest rock in the rock pile. But oftentimes it's not if we just admit that. But if we get in the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, I know you've heard that before. I've heard it a hundred times. But do we do it, beloved? In the morning when you wake up, our minds rush to, got to wash them armpits, got to get the kids going, somebody breath stank, got to get the cha-chan, right? You know, our mind goes everywhere. But beloved, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to change our morning mental routine from thinking about what's going to happen in a few hours to thinking about the gospel that you need to believe right now that's going to empower you to do whatever God's going to call you to do in a few hours. 
It's like saying, you know, pray. Yeah, pray. But no, there's power in it. And we feel it and experience the power through God in prayer when we pray. But you guys sometimes got to get exhorted to do so. Right. So, guys, preach the gospel to yourself every morning. And remember different aspects of the gospel as you preach it to yourself in the morning. Not just Jesus died for my sins. Amen. But what does that mean for your day to day? What kind of reconciliation is he calling you to bring the, the gospel to bear on? What kind of broken person are you going to encounter? Maybe it's just you that day. But what kind of broken person are you going to encounter that needs that gospel truth? Who, somebody who's lost that needs to be found or someone who's hurt that needs to be comforted or someone who's been abandoned. You can tell them about a, 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 a savior who understands their pain. Right. Remember the different facets of the gospel and rehearse them to yourselves in the morning. Talk about it. Whatever one's pressing on you. God wants to use you to spread his glory, name and gospel. But if we don't preach it and teach and talk about it, you know, we, we won't do that as a church. And, and in this morning's text, we're going to see an example, I believe, of someone who in the mid in the moment when the moment came to it. He forgot the gospel. Not intellectually forgot the gospel. We remember it up in here. We know what it, you know, we get recited, especially if we've been in church a long time. But he forgot it. it. Didn't come out of his hands and his feet. Beloved, I want you to preach the gospel on a daily basis. And I want you to remember those times that you didn't and, you, and, and, and use them as a form of a motivation. Like, Lord, I know I failed you once, but beloved, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be that guy, that girl that, that's afraid of the friction. I want us to be able to stand firm on that day when friction comes. And beloved, I want to remind you all this friction is coming your way and it's going to come quickly and it's going to come swiftly. You guys have watched the news. We are in a hinge moment in history. We've been so in the last 10 years and it's not going to change in the next 20. This is going to be something that history books record is this era of time. But let not the church be silent in this era of time. And that means, beloved, that you as God's people cannot be silent in this era in time. And I think it starts and its roots is in preaching, getting in the habit of preaching the gospel to yourself every day so that you can stand firm on that day when what you believe and why you believe it is going to be tested and persecuted. It will come. This morning, we're going to see a classic example of how allowing fear and friction can move a man from orthodox truth to heresy real fast. We're continuing again in our in our series in the book of Galatians. If you haven't caught on or maybe you haven't been a pillar long enough um, right now, Pastor Kane and me, I'm going through the book of Galatians. But when Pastor Everett preaches, he's going through the book of First Peter. So either way, you're going through a book of the, of the Bible. So go ahead and open in your copy of God's word to the book of Galatians. And just to give you a little recap up to this point in the book of Galatians. In chapter one, we saw the apostle Paul defending firstly his apostleship, the fact that he is an apostle. He's one who, that means somebody who's sent out, that means a sent out one, essentially. But in this context, it's someone who's sent out by the Lord Jesus himself. In chapter one, verse one, he said he was sent out by the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter one, verses 11 and 12, he says that this gospel message that he proclaims and he teaches and he, and he, and he, and he spreads, he got that from Jesus too. Right. And, 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 and then he goes on to, to talk about and he constantly reminds us about those 12, those 12 apostles that we hold so, so, so highly are just men at best. And he's like, remember that they're just men at best. Good men, Jesus's men, God's men, men. 
And he reminds, like, my, the gospel I preach isn't subpar to those men, for I received it from Christ Jesus himself. And Paul is compelled to visit those 12. We learned this a couple weeks ago. He visited those 12 apostles to ensure that the gospel that he preaches wasn't being undermined by those men's influence and authority, that they weren't preaching a gospel that contradicted what Jesus told him he needs to be preaching. And what happened in that confrontation? It says in Galatians chapter 6, verses, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 2, verse 6 through 9, he says, now from those recognized as important, and then he goes, well, what they once were to me makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. And highlight that in your Bibles, beloved. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to me, he says. In verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in me for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles. Verse 9. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that God had given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that they should go to the Gentiles, that, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. The gospel that Paul preached was a gospel free from adherence to the old covenant. That obedience to the old covenant, and namely and particularly the act of circumcision, is not the means by which you're going to find favor with God. He was saying that we find favor with God through faith. Beloved, an everyday word for faith is trust. Okay? If you entrust, if you trust, that's faith. Believing in, putting your, your trust in something. He says that's the means by which we have acceptance and forgiveness with God is through trusting him. And that sounds counter human because in every other instance in life we got to do something to get something and so in this instance the these men the people called the the circumcised oftentimes or the circumcision party which we'll look at in a minute they say in order to be accepted by god you got to go ahead and you know do the snippy that's how that's how you get in that's a covenant reality and paul says later later he's gonna say beloved <laughs> the very person we get that from was accepted before he had that his argument is going to be immaculate, but we'll look at that in the week ahead. What we want to highlight here is that the 12 apostles and Paul have a, a, a meeting of unity and they give each other the right hand of fellowship and they agree that both of them believe the same gospel, the same truth, and they need to go out and preach it together. One group goes to one group of people and Paul and his boys go into the other group of people. Yet in the midst of this seemingly powerful display of unity, if we don't major in preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, a little bit of friction can move a man, even one of the twelve. And that's what happens in today's text. It, it, friction moved one of those pillars, one of the twelve chosen ones from Jesus himself, off-center. Look at Galatians chapter 2, beloved. We're going to start in verse 11. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul writing. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Yo, fighting words, right? Y'all forget Galatians is hot. Paul's emotional. Cephas, who's Cephas? Cephas is just an Aramaic equivalent to the name Peter. Okay, Cephas, Paul, you remember back in, they had multiple names that they would use given in whatever given culture they were engaging. Cephas, Paul, Simon, 
Peter means rock. But on this particular day, Peter was anything but a rock. Paul had to oppose him. And he says, I did it to, to his face. And I just love how Paul said that. Because if you do a little research on Paul, Paul's not a big brawling dude. We get this image of Paul as this big beast. Walks around with the, the glow on him. Just, ah. Paul's not that at all. He even says, I know I'm frail and small and, and, and I can't speak in person, but I'm big in the spirit, though. Paul's physical stature is nothing. Peter's the fisherman that does labor work. Peter got the biceps and the triceps of steel. Peter's the beast. He does hard labor. Paul's whole life worked with his head. His body all atrophied out, right? But what did he do? He withstood Peter to his face because the gospel compelled him to. Peter stood guilty of committing some sort of crime, and the apostle Paul was going to be the prosecuting attorney on the case. Right there, I want to pull a principle. And the principle is this, beloved, there's somebody in your life that needs a loving confrontation from you that you're avoiding because of the stature of the person in whom you need to confront. I don't mean the physical stature, the emotional, mental stature of the person. Someone you love, perhaps, is trending, attending down a dangerous road. Beloved, speak the language of love through warning to that brother or sister. I'm asking you to do that. No matter who they are, no matter what this statue may be in your life or how they may have raised you or brought you this or took care of you at this point, be not afraid to lovingly confront, beloved. You cannot be afraid to lovingly confront a brother or sister, an aunt and uncle, a nephew or a niece, a son or a daughter. You have to be willing to do that. If someone is actively believing a lie, it behooves you not to cower, That's right. but to have a loving confrontation with them. Now, before you have this loving confrontation, let me exhort you with this. Pray for favor and clarity. Mm-hmm. Like literally get on your knees and ask God for favor with that person and before God and clarity in thought so you can articulate why and what's happening with that person and why you even need to confront them in the first place. Second, check your own heart for for falseness and for pride. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that, you will confront and you will be the most arrogant confrontational person and you will have very little success winning that brother or sister back. And third, approach this thing with gentleness and humility. Come from the bottom, not from the top. Come as I want to help you, serve you, lift you up, not as I'm condemning you because I got it and you don't. You gotta, have a, you gotta have a right posture in, the, in most situations when you have to confront. But beloved, it's unloving at best and downright cruel at worst to see someone you love living a lie and yet remain silent. I live this all the time. Majority of my family don't believe. And how cruel it is of me to have the author of life ready to give, but I don't give it to them. I'm encouraged by James chapter 5. You see this in your cross-reference sheet. James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. It gives me a motivation. It says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Beloved, warning is a love language if done right.
1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all, maintain constant love for one another. And that means sometimes you need to confront somebody since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, on this occasion and in this instance, Paul's love was not coming from the bottom. His love was coming from the top. There's reasons why Paul, and you guys understand this, if your child walks into the, to a busy street, you're not coming like, oh, let me help you get out of the street, child. You snatching that mug by the hair. Get out the street, right? Not as an anger thing, but as a, I got, if I don't snatch you, something worse may happen to you, right? This, there are certain instances where you need to love hard right now, right now. And this is one of those instances because eternal life is at stake. The gospel is at stake. You know, it's funny is we treat the gospel like something that we have to always come from underneath with. We have to be, always be gentle with. There's sometimes, and beloved, this is my story. I needed somebody to come at me with the heat. Stop playing games like you good, bro. You ain't good. Stop playing. And I was like, oh, shoot, you're right. If he had come like, you know, God loves you. I'm like, yeah, you love everybody. We good. But he was like, nah, bro, you in trouble with him. And I needed that harsh love. I guess I'm hard-headed like Peter. What could have brought these two men, these two pillars of the faith to this point, to a point of confrontation where Paul had to confront him to his face and he did it in front of everybody. That's something else that's crazy. He did it in front of a group of people. Look at Galatians chapter two, look at verse 12 now. Paul's speaking of Peter. And he says, for he regularly, Peter, for Peter regularly, he ate, key word, ate. He ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself. Why? Because he feared those from the circumcision party. Now, let me clear up just some terms before we look at the, you know, the, the entirety of the text. And it says men from James. James is Jesus' brother. James was a non-believer all the way through Jesus' life until Jesus resurrected. And at some point after the resurrection of Christ, James believed. And he became a monster for the faith in Jerusalem. In fact, James is widely seen as the most influential of all the men in Jerusalem during this era, even over Peter, which is there's a reason, and we'll see the reason in the text. But James is widely seen as one of the most influential of all, and he's deemed an apostle. They say James is an apostle. That's how influential he is. When it says men from James came, it doesn't mean that James was spying on Peter and sent dudes to check him. That's not the text. It's not, not what it means there. It means that these are dudes from James's camp. These are dudes that were under James's influence at, to some degree or way. Like if somebody from this church went to another area of the city, they would say, oh, men and women from Pillar came. Men and women under such and such pastor showed up. It's not that you were sent by any of us. You just went and you are recognized as someone under that influence and, and tutelage. Okay, so when it says men from James came, don't think ill of James. Because that's what we do when we read the text, like, James, this dude, ah, oh, he's a dirtbag. No, he didn't even do it. He didn't send nobody. These dudes showed up. Second, it says the last thing, the last words in that verse, verse 12, it says the circumcision party. Let me, I just want to clarify what that is. That's important to understanding the text well. These are Jews who became Christians, but they refused to hold their culture with an open hand. Not only did they refuse to hold their culture with an open hand, they forced their culture on other people and called it true faith. Dang, it sounds like 21st century America. Mm -hmm. 
certain political parties is the Christian party though, right? They forced others to assimilate to their culture, and if they didn't, they were not acceptable before God. That's what they were pushing. That's what the, when you see the words of the circumcision party, that's the dudes. Okay, that's who you have in mind. Now, the history of the Jewish people plays a major role as to why Peter eating with the Gentiles in one moment and not eating with the Gentiles in another moment is such a big deal. Beloved, there's no law. Hear this. There's no law in the Old Testament where a Jew can't eat with a Gentile. That law doesn't exist. However, God gave in Leviticus chapter 11 and following a long, long section called the purity laws. Those purity laws are what told the Jews what they could and could not do as it pertains to eating and engaging uh, with other individuals and, you know, touching dead bodies. And, and it had a lot to do with being clean and unclean. And, and you guys have heard this language if you read the Old Testament when somebody's unclean, right? They touched a corpse, they're unclean for seven days. Or, or if they eat something they shouldn't, they're unclean for a certain amount of time. And so there's chapters of something called the purity laws from Leviticus 11 on, and it goes on for several chapters. I want to say it goes at the chapter nine or ten, um, sorry, 19 or, or, or uh, 17. Now, the strictness of these purity laws do make it really hard for a Jew to have an authentic relationship with a Gentile because there's certain things that Gentiles are going to eat that God told his people, y'all ain't eating that. And there's certain things that Gentiles are going to touch and then go and play with people that, J- that Jews couldn't go and touch. So, for example, if a Gentile went to a funeral and kissed their loved one, they cannot then go and hang out with the Jew for fear that the Gentiles are going to touch him. Because then he would be unclean, ceremonially unclean, and now you got to go and isolate for seven days to ceremonially, ceremonially recleanse himself, which is an inconvenience. Ooh. Thus, for a Jew, and understand this, this is generations worth of this. And so when those laws come, what do we do? We start putting, and parents know this, because parents, we do this all the time. We start putting laws around the laws so we don't break the laws. Right? That's what we start doing. It's like, yeah, you don't want your kid to do this, but as a matter of fact, nah, you going, instead of coming home at 10, just make sure you got to come home at 8. We start, putting, we start putting things around, hedging, trying to protect so that they don't even get close to breaking the law that they're, that they're not supposed to break. And this is what eventually begins to, ha- begins to happen, and it becomes ingrained in the Jewish people. In fact, if you look at John 18, uh, 28 in your, in your cross-reference sheet, you just see the sentiment of it here. In John 18, it says, And they led Jesus to Caiaphas, to the governor's quarters. It was early in the morning, and the Jews, they did not enter the headquarters for themselves. Otherwise, they'd be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. Right? The, the sentiment is even there, and Peter even has a similar sentiment in a passage we're going to look at in the morning. And I wanted to bring your attention to this. In the Book of Jubilees, you're wondering, why am I quoting the Book of Jubilees? The Book of Jubilees is not in the Bible. It's not a biblical book. However, it sheds a lot of insight into the the traditions of the Jewish people. It was a pseudepigraphal book. It basically highlights the Book of Genesis and fills in blanks that Genesis doesn't have, but it was written by some dude way after Moses' time. So basically, it's probably not true, but it's full of a whole lot of good cultural insight as to how the Jewish people thought. And in the book of Jubilees, 22:16, it says, and, and, do, and do thou, my son Jacob, remember my words and observe the commandments of Abraham, my, thy father. And then listen to what he says. Separate thyself from the nations and eat not with them. 
Do not do according to their works and become not their associate, for their works are unclean. All their ways are pollution and abomination and uncleanliness. This is what they believed. This is how they operated. Though it wasn't in God's old covenant law, that's the, uh, that's the modus operandi. You know what? You got these parody laws. How about this? Complete disassociation. Just, ah, with them. They all unclean. They all filthy. They all dirty. They're animals. In fact, I can't stand them. And then the half-breed Samaritans are even worse. Their mama and daddy are cursed. Everybody's in trouble. That's the mindset here. But the text tells us that Peter a faithful Jewish man used to eat regularly with the Gentiles at a table together and they're probably eating the same food. He probably ain't saying, man, make sure you cook that kosher, doc. Like, he, it's on the same grill top. Y'all, y'all, they were barbecuing. Like, you gotta get this out your mind. It's so ancient. Yeah, they probably had grills. It's probably where we get our grills from. The question I always had is, how does Peter justify this? As a faithful Jewish man and knowing those purification, those purity laws, how does he get away with eating at the table with the Gentiles and not defiling himself? Acts chapter 10. Beloved, if you haven't read Acts chapter 10, this is a linchpin in, 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 in Christian history. In Acts 10, God gives Peter a vision. Peter is going up to a rooftop to pray. Y'all with me? I know I'll be t- I'm, t- I'm just talking. This, this, hear me. Peter goes up to a rooftop to pray. You know, every time, sometimes you pray, your stomach starts to get the little, the little rumble, you get a little hungry. Peter got a little hungry. So the homies went downstairs and got ready to cook something up for him. In the midst of him praying, getting ready in his mind to eat, God put, throws him into a trance. And he has what's called a vision. And in this vision, there's a white sheet coming down from heaven. And on the white sheet, when you know it, grub. Right? Food on the white sheet. The sheet was full of things that we would call in our modern vernacular non-kosher animals. In those purity laws, it tells you which animals you could eat, hooves that chew the cud or animals that chew the cud with no hooves. Or certain animals was good to eat and certain animals God was like, mm, you don't eat that. And it's full of animals that according to the purity laws, you're not supposed to eat. And so Peter looks upon this, this sheet with all these animals and God speaks to Peter. And this is what God tells Peter to do. Get up, Peter. Kill. Eat. What's probably run through Peter's mind? This Satan. <laughs> this is a real subjective scenario right now. Get up, Peter. Kill. Eat. And I'm sure after he gathers himself, it says that he responds in verse 14 of chapter 10. He responds as any serious Jewish man would. This is what he says. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Now, beloved, this isn't a disrespectful no. This is the Lord. You my dog. I can't do that to you kind of no. It's like you asked me not to do this. I'll never do this to you. Nah, I ain't doing that. Is this Satan? I'm not doing this. And then look at what God says in return. And this, this has to rock Peter in verse 9. He says, what God has made clean, you must not call impure. And then verse 10 of Acts 10, if you will miss this, this happened three times. This scenario, this dialogue, it's in some way, shape, or form, happens three, three times between Peter and God. Your first inclination is thinking, this is God, how God gets something through a thick skull. Because Peter didn't get it. No, beloved. He's trying to get it through our, this is a, hinge, a linchpin in history. He's changing the modus operandi completely here. Peter is just faithful. No, Lord, I can't do this. 
Don't call what I call impure. But Lord, but you said, I know what I said. Listen to what I'm saying. This is more than God needing to hammer something through Peter's mind. This is God opening the eyes of his people in the whole world that all who place their faith in Jesus, all who entrust themselves to Jesus, no matter their ethnicity or their culture or their baggage, no matter their evil past, what is riddled with, no matter where they were, no matter what false gods they may have worshipped, by faith in Christ, they're forgiven of their sin and saved from God's wrath. That's not in the mindset of a Jew at this time. You mean, you mean to tell me that this dude, the only thing I can think, I'm a World War II nerd. Love World War II. It's like me saying Hitler could have repented of his sin in his last moments. And y'all get to heaven and be like, bro, what you doing up here? My whole life I worship God. You over there killing people and you get up here? Sound like a story in the Bible, though. That sounded the equivalent. Them? Them God, them dirt, them, they worship all these false gods, they eat all these unclean things, they, they don't even, they don't respect you, they don't love you, they don't care about you, and God's like, no, faith in my name, that's where it's at. Any ethnicity, any tribe, any culture, any past of worship of any false god, including themselves, faith in me, I got them. That's what he's saying. He has to get it through a whole, a whole arena of people. He says, they're clean by grace through faith in me. I cleanse them with my blood. They wash. They ain't unclean. Don't call what I clean unclean, bro. I clean them. Then it says this in Acts chapter 10. God, and this is where it is. That's a subjective dream. Beloved, if somebody comes to you with a subjective dream, don't believe them. But if the dream is accompanied, is accompanied with truth that you can see and is verified by the text, you believe it. In this particular point in time in history, Peter could have just said, I had a dream. All the Jews' job is supposed to say, yeah, you wild and you, you was hungry. And then you ate one bean and the bean did something to you, right? That's the idea there. It's like, no, Peter, you wildin'. But no, God confirms what he told Peter by doing only what God can do. Acts 10, look what he does in Acts 10, 34. It says, Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. First time in his whole life he understood that. Beloved, you may think that God showed the Jewish people favor, but the scripture says God shows no favoritism. Understand this. The Jewish people were a means to an end. They were not a super highly favored people of God. Never were. Abraham was chosen by God. He said, I'm going to use you and I'm going to protect my seed, the seed I promised from Eve, from you, down to the bottom. And everything I do is all about protecting the seed. It got nothing to do with you. All your people. I'm protecting my promise to redeem my people, and I just so happen to choose you and use you to do this. You ain't special, Doc. But what happens when God is using you and your people to protect the seed? Big head. We the ones. God's like, nah, Doc, I've been protecting my seed the whole time. That's why I called you apart. I couldn't let them get all mushed up with everybody. I had to keep them pure. I had to keep them right. God treats... Y'all notice God treats the, the nation of Israel the same way he treats every other nation? When they worship false gods and they get punished, when they worship the true God, he gives them favor and repentance. It's the same thing. Nothing different. They mess up. God's like, I'm mashing them all. The Jewish people, he says that multiple times. They messed up. Come on, Assyria. Get them. Told y'all. And then Assyria goes and messes up. All right, Israel. Get them. Right. It's the same thing. Don't don't get don't be deceived. Peter says it with his own lips. Now I truly understand for the first time in my life. God shows no favoritism. Verse 35 in Acts 10. But in every nation, 
The person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is peace between peoples. In peace, we receive that through Jesus Christ. And then look what he says at the end of that verse. He says, he is Lord of all. He everybody Lord. Verse 43, Acts 10. It says, the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes, beloved, that promise is true even for us today. If you believe in him, forgiveness of sins is yours. Remember, believe, trust. That's what faith is. Trust in him. Forgiveness of sins is yours. Verse 44. It says, while Peter was speaking these words, here's the proof. Okay, Peter got it. She came down. It wasn't just about animals and food. He's like, no, it's about people. Look what he says in verse 44. He says, while Peter was still speaking these words, what happened? God, the Holy Spirit, came down on all those who heard the message. These are Gentiles who hear the message. Verse 44, verse 45. The circumcised believers who had came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. God proved the validity of the dream that he gave to Peter. Not just to Peter, but to everybody there. And you know know what's funny? That's very consistent with Paul's message. He's just sharpening Peter's theology. That's all he's doing. And then Peter says at the end of verse 46, then Peter responded to verse 47, Can anyone withhold water and prevent prevent these people from being baptized? Why? They have received the the Holy Spirit, just as we have. Verse 48, and then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, Peter sat down at the tables eating with the Gentiles because God declared them clean. God had opened the eyes of all in attendance that neither foods nor Gentiles were to be despised any longer. But understand this, Peter's newfound revelation probably caused compromise and it probably compromised his influence with the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem is an ultra-conservative church. It's the way we've always done it. This is how Jews roll. And now you're coming in with some old change? Not feeling that. And so this is, beloved, one of the reasons why we believe James had greater influence, or very, if not equal influence, to Peter in Jerusalem than Peter, as Peter did. Because Peter, in their view, is now compromised. Oh, you believe in that now? I know Jesus chose you and everything, but I don't know compromised. Look what they do in Acts chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. Is that in your cross reference sheet? Yeah, boy! Look what he says. I love when scripture say, read the scripture. It's good for you. Look what it says. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, uh, sorry, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, remember them? The ones that have refused their cultures, everything. Circumcision party criticized them. What'd they say? You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? You see how Peter's influence can weigh in there? These are influential people. This is what I call systemic residue. When, when there's an issue that's supposedly fixed through law and system, right? It's fixed through, through system, yet it's still detrimentally present in, on the cultural level. This is systemic residue. Beloved, we know exactly about this because we are are the the grandchildren of uh, brothers and sisters who fought through the civil rights movement. And it's funny because in those restaurants and in those places of services, African Americans were able to receive service by law. They were able to vote by law. I'm the first one that's able to vote by birth, from birth, in my family. That ain't that far away. 
By law, they can eat there. By law, you are free. By law, you are clean. But there's this cultural residue that remained. And it's real hard to get cultural gunk out of the gears. Even though you say, you go ahead and clean the gears. Gears clean now. No, it ain't clean yet. It's more than just changing the law. You got to get this out of the, out of the people. Schools were integrated. But the residue remained. Now check this out. This is where I wanted, I wanted to do something to you. Even though many didn't personally carry any animosity toward African-American brothers or sisters, they didn't carry any hate or any stigmas, their complicity with the status quo and even their fear of being rejected by their own is what made true unity and true change actually possible. Beloved, that's what we see in this passage. Peter's not forwarding a false truth. Peter's capitulating to false truth. And through his capitulation to false truth, unity is never going to be attained. That's why Paul had to withstand him to his face. Because something great was at stake. And it's the same thing in our day, in our generation. If we see unbiblical truth, beloved, we can't just sit idly by and let it do what it does. At some point, we have to rise with one voice and say something, despite what everybody else wants us to say. we got to say whatever this leads us to say. We can't be our own circumcision party. Whatever the culture says is how we think. Whatever the culture votes is how we vote. No. What does God say? Stand there alone, beloved. God is bigger than any of them. At the end of the day, they fall off. The only one you have for all eternity is your Lord and Savior. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Guys, Peter's influence plus the cultural residue of his day led to him falling off center and others following his lead. And this is why being a leader is so hard. Others are watching. Look what it says in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Galatians. It says, then the rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy. So that even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is Paul's right hand, Doc. He knows the gospel. He's watched Gentiles be saved over and again. And even he is like, yeah, you. I'm going to go ahead and be quiet. Just come over here. And Paul's sitting there seeing this, and you can't help his little frail body seizing in anger. Like, what is this I'm watching right now? I thought y'all was riding. Beloved, two things to pull out of that reality. One, be careful who you follow. Beloved, that applies to Canaan. Okay, it applies to Pastor Eric. Be careful who you follow. If they're not leading you closer to Jesus, false teacher. Understand that they're leading you to trust in something else. And Jesus would not be pleased with you being led to be shepherded by something else if he's your shepherd. He wants you under his rule, his reign, his direction, his love, his care. Let no false shepherd shepherd you, including me, including Pastor Eric, Pastor Derek, Pastor Martiche. Scripture, let the, let the Lord dictate where you go, how you, how you move. And our job is just to get you closer to him. But the second thing, this is another thing. Never underestimate your influence. Be careful who you follow, but don't underestimate your own influence because the world is watching you. People are watching you. I'm watching you. I see what you post. I see how you move when you come up in here, how you dip out real quick. Oh, I see this stuff. People are watching. You have influence. You have, you have the ability to create change. 
for God's glory in your sphere of life. But are you silent because of the friction? Are you afraid to speak up because of the friction? Don't fear the circumcision party. Don't fear the cultural left, right, up, down, sideways. Don't fear any man or anybody telling you anything. People are watching you. And what I want them to see when they watch me, I want them to see me standing on a firm foundation of God's word rather than them watching me be tossed to and fro by every wind of culture and doctrine. I want to be a pillar, not a kite. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, it tells us to strive until what? Look in your cross reference sheet. It says to strive until we all reach unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son, growing in maturity with stature measured by Christ's fullness. And this is how we do it. We don't do it by being tossed to and fro. He says this is how we do it. Then we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, uh, by being tossed um, by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness in the teachings of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. For him, the whole body is fitted together and knit together. Every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body, building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Each individual part has to have its proper working. Beloved, when we see the church fail to stand up for truth, beloved, the fingers pointed at us. Did our ligament pull its, pull its weight? Whatever ligament you may be, did it pull its weight? Did it do its work? Did it do its part? Beloved, I want us to be prophetic as a community, as a community of believers. When we see things happening in our blocks and on our neighborhoods and on the doorsteps of which we live, we speak into that. We walk into that. And we say something about it. We talk about it. We bring awareness to it. We bring the gospel to it. That's the part where everybody doesn't like. Bring awareness? I'm good. Speak into it? Yeah, everybody's person. You love everybody. Wait a minute. What does the gospel say about this, though? Because we, we, we always identify with the victim, but never the person who committed the crime. But the gospel's for both. They don't want to hear that, though. The gospel's for the, the guilty and the innocent, that's not popular. Beloved, I believe in you get, you, you messed up, you need, you, you gonna, you gonna deal with that, you're gonna have to pay for that. I believe in justice wholeheartedly. But at the cross, true justice was enacted. And by grace through faith, no matter what gods that guilty party may have worshiped, no matter what that guilty party may have done, no matter how much we may hate what they have done, and how much we love the victim, and the victim didn't deserve such things. Both parties is what needs the gospel. Beloved, we can identify with both of these groups in the text, in this text. Some of us know what it feels like, because you got to think about this. Remember, who, remember who's not being mentioned in the text? The Gentiles who were being rejected. What did it feel like to be them? Some of us understand that, right? We know what it's like, what it, what it's like to, to be rejected. I know what it's like to be rejected. The anguish of not being wanted is real. Some of y'all are gonna hear this and feel this. You start having self-doubt. You start having a perceived lack of value that you carry day in and day out. And then you develop something called self-hate, right? And then you start to do things in order to sabotage your own health. Beloved, I know because I've been there. I know you. some of y'all been there. And then you start to not like you, and then you don't like people who look like you. 
the gospel's for them. The gospel says, bro, you ain't alone in none of this. The gospel is for you. Jesus understands what it's like to be abandoned and to be alone, to be hated and to be rejected, my beloved. Read his, read his whole biography, his narratives in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, beloved. They all highlight the reality. He was abandoned by the ones he, he did nothing but love. In John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, it says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not even recognize him. He came to his own people, and they didn't receive him. by faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done, those of us who are rejected, we find acceptance. Not because we've done anything or because we are anything, but because we believe on Jesus. That's how we become a child of God. If we entrust ourselves to him, when we come to Jesus, we learn what being wanted is all about. You see that in Romans chapter 5 in your cross-reference sheet. Where it talks about he did this for, though you were a sinner, because he loved you, he wanted you, he demonstrated his love by giving his life for you. He wants you. That's what we wanted is. Then he says, you know, you have value in my sight. Psalm 139 talks about how you were carefully knit in the womb of your mother. You, you have special value. He put you together on purpose. Beautiful. Beautiful. You being rejected by people bears no weight on God's love for you and his giving his life for you. Beloved, if you are one of those people who feel rejected or have been rejected, I want to tell you this pillar church does not reject you. Jesus doesn't reject you. And Paul wants you to know that you are not rejected. But I want you to look at the flip side as well. Who's Paul talking to? The rejected or the rejecter? The, the one who received, the, the one who uh, received, was the victim of the, 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 the false action or the one who gave it? Did y'all notice? Did you see this? He's talking to the guilty party. Jesus identifies with those individuals by granting them forgiveness of sin. The gospel shows us that the error of our ways and brings us grace and forgiveness. Look what Peter, uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.14, if we are that guilty party. He says, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone. This is what he said. If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Right? That's the beginning of, his, of what he's going to tell Peter. You ever heard the term heresy? Heresy is usually only applied to mental thought, right? If, let me give you a definition. Heresy is any doctrine or opinion that is not incongruous with biblical truth. Anything that's not consistent with what the Bible says, that's considered a heresy, a non-truth. And we only apply it to intellectual thought. Beloved, Paul's applying it to physical action. This is why I say your theology got to start here. Do this here, and it's not coming out of here. If it doesn't, not good. You ever heard of orthodoxy? That's right thinking. Orthopraxy, right living. Well, he's not calling Paul out, Peter out for wrong thinking. He's calling Peter out for wrong action. But he, he wasn't living out his, uh, Peter, Peter's truth that he said he believed isn't consistent with the life that he was living, with his, with his flakiness by pulling away from the table. Any action that's not incongruous with the gospel is heresy. And Paul rightly sees that heresy in Peter and chooses to love Peter and his followers and the gospel by calling it out publicly. Peter's being accused of rebuilding division between Jews and Gentiles through his action and by advancing a false notion that in order, to be a, in order for a Gentile to be acceptable before God, he has to give up all of his culture. But even more than that, he has to functionally adopt and assimilate to a Jewish culture. 
in order to be saved. That's what that action is doing by him pulling away. That's what he's communicating to everybody there. When these dudes from James came, if I got to pull back, I got to show them I'm still clean. I'm still down. I'm still down. That's baloney. I'm still down. But who? The ones who are going to reject you in five minutes? Because you weren't down enough? <laughs> Nonsense. Yet the truth of the gospel allows Christians to be set free from the bondage of having to, be, to, having to capitulate to any culture. That you can be a Gentile and be fully a Gentile and do all the Gentile customs as long as they're not contradictory to biblical truth. And you could be a Jew and do all the Jewish customs as you want as long as they're not contradictory to biblical truth. Just, you could be you as long as it's consistent with the text, as long as it's consistent with Scripture. But I want to highlight what Paul calls this. Look at verse 12. Galatians, we already read it. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those of the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by his, his hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, his actions was deviating from the truth of the gospel. And beloved, that's what our actions tend to do, but there is also forgiveness in the gospel, and there's hope in the gospel. You know what this text is missing? Peter's rampant rejection of what Paul's about to tell him, and what Paul told him. Peter humbly accepts the truth of his own hypocrisy, and that's another posture that we need to adopt. When someone's telling us something that's true, beloved, eat it even if it hurts. You think Peter felt good in front of everybody? You, you, yo, to your face? Yo, doc, you got it wrong, B. Well, he's little. You got it wrong, B. And he's up here like, Everybody's looking at me. I'm the leader. I'm big bad Peter. I'm the dude that walked on water. Everybody looks at me, and here's this dude, new cat, deviated from my own culture, trying to tell me what's up. He's right. I remember the time when Acts 10 happened, and I saw the sheep come down. My bad. All peoples are welcome at the foot of the cross, including you, beloved. No matter what anybody tells you, the gospel of the kingdom and the Lord Jesus is for every tribe, tribe, every tongue, and every nation, both the rejected and the rejecter. And so I'm calling all of us, no matter what situation we may find ourselves in, our job is to repent and turn and trust ourselves to Jesus. We find acceptance and forgiveness, no matter what situation you find yourself in. Come on home to Jesus. Let him love you, forgive you, and redeem you, because he gave himself for you because you were worth it. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. There's so much more to be said, but Lord, I've spoken long enough. I pray that your word would return with fruit. I thank you for the reality that no matter your tribe, tongue, or nation, that we find acceptance in the, in the cross. That we find hope in the cross. That if we are guilty of committing sin, we find forgiveness in the cross. And if we've been rejected, we find acceptance in the cross. And if our past is full of dirt, we find freedom from shame in the cross. We find everything we need in the person of Jesus, Lord. That should tell us something. We don't need nothing and nobody else. We need you first and foremost. So, Lord, get us close to you best you can. Draw us near to you that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for loving us with this passage, with a loving warning. I pray that everything that was good would be 
could resonate and hit and everything that needed to be blown away, you blow it away immediately. But that the truth of the gospel will be what remains. We give you all the praise, Lord, and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.